0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Today, we're joined by Gary Beasley, founder and CEO of Roofstock Capital. And we're going to discuss how Roofstock helps single family real estate investors buy and sell properties in a much easier way than you can do traditionally. And we're also going to talk about how you can buy fractional shares of properties On Roofstock One. That said, let's just jump right into today's episode. Gary, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved with real estate?
2: Absolutely. First, guys, thanks for having me on. Um, So I've spent the majority of my career in real estate in some capacity. uh, A large part at the intersection of real estate and tech, as you know from uh, Roofstock. It's it's a a tech marketplace that happens to be in real estate. I've also done traditional, um, hotels, kind of hotel acquisition and operations. I've had, I've got some background in some office and industrial early in my career and apartments. So I've got kind of a broad array of, of real estate experience, Mo- started as a financial analyst and then kind of worked my way into some different positions within uh, real estate. But I, you know, I, I like, uh, I like operationally intensive real estate models like hospitality or single family rentals where there's an operating component because there are often levers you can pull there to create value, and we could we could talk about that. But I actually grew up in a real estate family. My dad has a small commercial real estate brokerage. When I was a kid in the small town we grew up in in Indiana, so I always kind of grew up around real estate. And I like the you know the tangible nature of it, and and there are always I think opportunities to innovate in and around the space, if you're willing to sort of look at what trends are happening and what kind of technologies are available and and apply them thoughtfully. 100%.
0: You know, there's a lot of things changing with technology these days as it pertains to real estate. And I know that you're, you know, being founder and CEO of Roofstock and and what Roofstock is, it's it's an investment marketplace specifically for single family uh, real estate investors would you just be able to dive a little bit more into what the Roofstock platform is?
2: Sure. So we should take you out on the road with us. You described it perfectly. Um, it, so think about it in a very very simple sense. Uh, it's it's a bit like an Amazon for houses. You could go there as a retail investor or buyer and shop for houses around the country. We're we're in seventy different markets around the U.S. and and the idea of Roofstock really is to create a high transparency, low friction, low cost, tech enabled platform where you can buy homes or shares of homes as easily as you might be able to buy ultimately a pair of shoes off of Zappos or something like that. And so you know, we're not quite there yet, it's not exactly the one click purchase but we're working towards that over time. And that's the whole idea of roof stock creating liquidity right in houses, much like a stock. So you can go to our site, put in your criteria, find homes and actually do your underwriting on the site. We have a, some starting assumptions on things like the existing rents that are being paid. We certify the home itself, local property managers, as well as the tenant's payment history. So you could look at everything from the physical uh, characteristics of the home, the characteristics of the neighborhood, the income potential, etc. We have a, a, a lot of tools there to help you do that. And then when you want to buy it, you simply put it in your basket and move towards closing and and you go through a, a digital kind of checkout process. So we're trying to make it very easy to where you guys could be sitting in, you know, you could be in Long Island buying homes in Charlotte or Dallas or Birmingham as easily as if you were in market. And that's fundamentally the idea of Roofstock was to break down those geographic barriers to real estate investing. And Don't mention fact-
1: North Carolina, though. Let's leave it. I'm tired of New Yorkers coming in with all the capital and just wiping us out down here. So.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. It's uh, it, You've got some pretty good markets down there, though.
1: No, 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 no. North Carolina is a bad place to invest. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs>
2: it's
1: a bad place. Anyway, why, why anyway. do you focus on single families? Why not like multifamilies, mobile home parks, self-storage? Yeah. Why, why singles? Uh,
2: well, prior to doing this, I, I kind of – yeah, I was doing single family rental investing personally. I started investing with some friends, buying homes during the great recession and that turned into an actual business. And we ended up raising some pretty substantial institutional capital and took the, and took the platform public. So we created a real estate investment trust that owned, you know, many thousands of homes. So I learned the business from being a practitioner a kind of an investor operator We built some pretty cool software around both the acquisition and the management side. And then after taking it public and running it for a bit, uh, my co-founders and I came up with this idea of why don't we create a marketplace for single-family rental homes? Single-family housing is the largest asset class in the country. It's about $25 trillion, sits in U.S. houses. And you have a pretty good ecosystem for owner-occupants to trade properties to sell them through the multiple listing service, but there was nothing designed for the investor market. If you wanted to buy a home that was already cash flowing, there was no marketplace for that. And there's about three three trillion of assets that are long-term rental. So really the only reason we started with single family was no one was doing it. We, we had some expertise in it, it was underserved, and it's, the, and it's a very, very large uh, addressable market. And, and there's, a, I think, a very uh, meaningful value proposition that we could offer to both sellers and buyers in single family homes because we're removing so much of the friction. Where things like apartments and a lot of the other asset classes are already pretty, pretty efficient and had had institutional capital invested in them for, for some time. Um, really institutional capital didn't start flowing into houses, the rental home sector until 2012 in a meaningful way.
1: Can anybody jump on Roofstock to buy or sell or are there any qualifications?
2: Anybody can. Yeah. So you don't have to be a, you don't have to be a, a qualified investor or an accredited investor for, to buy, to use our platform. The only product you guys mentioned Roofstock One, currently uh, Roofstock One, which is our fractional share program, where you could buy 10th shares of homes. That's a security and that you need to be an accredited investor for. Um, we're currently, unfortunately sold out of those shares. We're in the process of gearing up some more inventory will likely launch later this year, or early next. So there's nothing available right now, which is good and bad. It's good. It shows that there was a definite interest in the product and we're looking forward to doing more, but there's nothing to buy right now.
1: How, how does Roofstock differ from the MLS? You mentioned that it's investor friendly. Is that kind of the key differentiator or are there other, other things that we should be aware of?
2: Yeah, it's very different. Um, so when you look at, um, your transaction process through the, let's say that, that you're in North Carolina or South Carolina or Chicago, and you want to buy a home in Florida. Uh, you start looking at properties in the F- Orlando multiple listing service. You might start. You might fly down there and start touring some properties, making some offers, finding a local network of brokers, contractors who could fix things up for you, management companies who could manage. And it's, quite a laborious process to do because, and then um, then you fly home and you try to manage it remotely. What we do is a little bit different. Instead of just looking at homes in Orlando, we might show you homes in eight different markets that are like Orlando, where you have similar yields, similar neighborhood profiles, and we break down those geographic barriers. And it opens up a lot more investing possibilities for you, and then everything is provided so you, you have the service providers in place to execute those transactions remotely. And we, having the experience in the industry can help with really robust diligence vaults so you could see the the information that you need to see and you could do it without having to hop on a plane, which is particularly helpful these days as there's not a lot of travel going on. So we've had an awful lot of interest in folks wanting to continue to deploy capital outside of their own drive zone. As you guys probably know, 70 plus percent of rental homes are owned within an hour drive of where the owner lives. And that's good if you want to self manage and avoid the, the management fee, but it's, it um, is oftentimes maybe not the best investment strategy for everyone. Cause you're very, very concentrated and correlated to your local market. So we encourage people to think about investing in markets that might be uncorrelated to where they live elsewhere. And that we're helping enable that.
0: So, you know, it kind of, kind of along those lines, you know, does it, do, does Roofstock also help people get in contact with property managers and get in yeah. contact with contractors? Cause you know, yeah. it almost, it almost sounds like this is almost like a, you can go on there, you can analyze the properties and then you can almost kind of, it's almost like creating your own turnkey platform in a sense. That's what it sounds like.
2: Yeah, no, it's exactly right. Um, Currently, um, we have probably over 50 different property managers we've certified on the platform. So if you go to different markets, you'll see typically two to three property managers we've vetted and you could see what their fee structure is, kind of what their level of experience is. And then during the checkout process, you could pick your property manager and it gets transferred over during the closing process. So it's very, very seamless. But that's the idea. Otherwise you'd have to fly to one of these markets and start interviewing property managers and doing that kind of stuff. So the the idea is we can help you do that. We can help you find lenders who are interested in making loans uh, depending on what your background is whether you're institutional or retail, what markets, what types of properties we've, we've sort of gone through and cut through a lot of the clutter so we can make recommendations on uh, you know, lenders, insurance providers, That's another pain point for investors, finding the right insurance, all those types of ancillary services we can help curate uh, the experience for you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for kind of, kind of speaking from personal experience, and I'm sure other listeners on the show have had this exact thing, right? I mean, to me, the biggest, the biggest, like to your point, you have to, if you want to do this yourself, right? You have to fly down states in Florida, fly down to Florida, uh, build a team of, of brokers, build a team of property managers, and then, to me, the more complex part, part, especially about managing something from afar, is dealing with contractors. I mean that that is, in my opinion, the riskiest part. So, I mean, is there anything Roofstock has in, in place to help mitigate that, that, that aspect of it for, for people who would, who would purchase the property through Roofstock?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, the good news is the homes that we sell are almost always already occupied or they're rent-ready to be leased. So the renovations have already been completed. And if homes need a lot of work, we kick them back to the seller and say this is the work that needs to be done to pass our certification process. So we've designed our site at least initially to cater towards homes that are already in in good shape because there's someone living there or they're ready to have a tenant in there. Now, we are experimenting in a little bit of a test case with some homes that need a bit more work where it could be we could avail it, uh, avail those properties to more experienced investors who might have their own contractor network and things like that, but that's generally not our customer right now. So we're going to, when we, when we really launch that program, uh, we'll have vetted contractors, much like we have on the property management side, we could pair people with who can do that work to, to make the property turnkey. So you, you called it kind of a make it a turnkey program. That's exactly kind of what we're t- talking about it internally is we don't want to leave it up to the the buyer to then have to figure out how to renovate the property. We're, we're really at this time just offering properties that are already rent ready.
0: Absolutely. I could definitely see where there's, where there's a huge market for, for those people just looking to basically place their capital in a nice steady, you know, investment that they don't really have to think about. They don't have to worry about. And then there's the other, there's another market who who, who wants to be part of that entire like value add renovation yes. process. So
2: yeah, uh, it's and- like we work, we work with a lot of those groups who are the value add shops, the typical kind of quote unquote fix and flip groups, and they will acquire homes, renovate them, put a tenant in them, and then sell them through our platform. And what they could find is we're actually a better distribution channel for them than the MLS typically, because on the MLS, most of the people looking want to live in the home. And if they have a tenant in it, it's, it's not great, but on Roofstock, everyone's looking to buy homes uh, pretty much for investment purposes. Um, so, it's we attract a different type of investor from kind of all over the globe who's looking to buy these cash-flowing widgets, which just happen to be single-family houses.
0: Absolutely, I mean I think this is a phenomenal idea. It's like the MLS for real estate investors, <laughs> for investors. Um, you know, kind of circling back to Roofstock One. You know, I, I understand that you know right now it's there's no more there's no more shares available at this present moment. Um, but kind of just drilling down to that model a little bit more. Um, how does it work from like, you know, I, I would imagine these are renovated properties already. These are, you know, rent ready. Um, how do investors get access to it? Is it, you know, do you, is it like a tick interest? Uh, do they receive like a K1 or, or do they receive like a 1099? Like if you were to invest in a fractional share of a property,
2: yeah. So, um, right now, the current structure is K1s. Um, so, think about you, you own a, uh, an interest we, we've got kind of our legacy program and then we're looking at making some changes to our new programs, some minor kind of structural tweaks, but, but think about it effectively as you're owning a 10th share of the, of the interest of the comp, of the, of the home. And think about it as it's, it's almost like a reit of one house, right? There's, there's debt and there's equity against that house. You own a 10% interest in, in all the profits or losses, tax you know depreciation all that passes through as if you were on title it's just you you own a share of that of that home that sits in a vehicle and our initial structure was using a a, a DST uh, a, C, a Delaware statutory trust in series um, mm-hmm. we're looking at some alternative structures for our new program uh, we might end up moving to an LLC structure we might end up keeping the DST but we're evaluating that but it's all transparent. You know, to, it, it doesn't really matter so much for the investor. What they should be thinking about is, we've created this this um, unique vehicle that allows them to take instead of putting a hundred thousand dollars into one property as equity, they could take that hundred thousand and maybe spread it across five or ten houses. And what we like about that is, in some ways, uh, it's it allows investors choice of where to go, but but more easily. Uh, can create a diversified portfolio. So if you don't want to own like one of a piece of 30,000 different homes in a big REIT or just one home, you can get some, some diversification and, and go across markets that you like. So
1: does, does each property have its own vehicle? Is that, is that so, the way you get structured?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Each property has its own. Um, and uh, so all the income and expenses for that property are, are tracked to that particular property. So, okay. so you yeah, can, That
1: was, was going to be my next question: is if property, if I don't own property A and property A tanks, does that affect me? Because that's what you get in the fund structure. But it sounds like this is definitely not. So you're, right. you're setting up, okay?
2: That's right. So, so there's positives and negatives to to this structure, which compartmentalizes the the um, income and the asset and the appreciation and everything. So that's why we. Um, and if you only buy, like, if you bought all ten shares of one home, it would be just like you're buying a home if you bought 10 shares of 10 different homes and there was a problem with that 10th home, then, you know, nine out of your 10 homes probably do fine. And one of them, you might have a zero or low distribution for that quarter. But if home 11 that you did not have an interest in had an issue that wouldn't affect you, you're only mm-hmm. affected by the homes that, that you're buying shares in. So there's, they're not cross collateralized.
1: So when you rolled this out, did you have like pre-selected homes that were going to be included in this?
2: Yeah, we did. Um, we bought uh, a number of homes on our balance sheet that met the criteria we were looking for, and we basically had a, a, a pretty tight buy box in certain in certain markets where we had a fair amount of experience, uh, certain star levels, certain price points, certain rent levels, certain uh, uh, characteristics of the homes themselves. At least three bedrooms, you know, certain vintages. And so it allowed us to sort of dial it in because what we tried to do was buy homes that historically were those types of homes perform quite well as rental homes over the long term. Mm. high demand. You know, if you buy a, you know, two bedroom, one bath or a three bedroom, one bath, you know, there, there there's certain ones that might be harder to to lease because rental homes oftentimes go to families. So, Mm. uh, so we did, we, we pre-bought some homes and then we bought some more um, and we're in the process now of, Looking at more inventory for the next launch, which would be in more markets, uh, we started in a couple markets in in Georgia we, you know Atlanta and, and Houston um, so we, we like both the Texas and the Georgia markets, but you know, we 've looked there 's other markets that look super interesting, like a, like a, a Nashville or an austin um, we 've we've got a whole running list of of markets that people have indicated they 'd like exposure to and over time, the the goal is to to offer roofstock one shares in lots of different markets. So you could pick your pick your strategy. Some people want maybe a midwestern high yielding portfolio, and you could buy shares of homes in you know like an in Indianapolis or you know some places that have nice yield. Or some people may say, Hey, I want just growth. I want to go to some of these higher priced cities like a Denver that have a lower yield, but I think will grow disproportionately. So. The you know the the idea is really to disaggregate this so people can really have choice and not have to buy an entire property in all these different cities to still get that that diversified exposure.
1: So when you rolled this out, when you greenlighted the uh, you see, you buy all the, these assets, you send them out to the investor group, and now it's green light. You know first come first serve. I'm assuming maybe maybe not. But assuming that it was first come, first serve, did you find that there were certain properties that went real quick and there were others that took a while to get picked up?
2: Uh, Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And we've analyzed it and I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to it. I think um, one, it was pretty small sample size. We only fractionalized about 70 houses. So we'll call it 700 shares that we had to sell and we did it in phases And uh, we didn't really do a lot of marketing. So it was a function of kind of who found it and and all that. It did seem like some of the newer homes sold faster uh, because there's, there's really nice curb appeal on some of these build build to rent type homes. Um, And so even though it's a financial investment, I think curb appeal uh, has some influence. Uh, So, but also some of the, less expensive, higher yielding properties that didn't necessarily have the optical curb appeal, but had great financials, right? It's, you know, you're getting another 100 or 150 basis points a year of of potential yield, and it's in a high demand rental area. Some people really gravitated towards that. And then I know some people buying shares of kind of doing a little bit of a barbell strategy, buying some like nicer, lower yielding stuff, and then some more yieldy stuff, which I think is interesting. so, but, but, you know, stuff sold surprisingly fast anyway. Um, so I, I don't know that we've learned enough about, uh, the consumer preference of, of what types of homes to put up there. My sense is that we're, we're selling homes of all of those characteristics across our site. I think there's investors who like all of those, um, different bands. It's just a question of, you know, what ones do we, we want to offer up and, uh, it kind of in in what markets, and then let the investors choose what kind of exposure they're looking for.
0: Yeah, you know, I, this, this I got I got to admit I I think this model is 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 an excellent model, and and, and because it's it's becoming more from my from my perspective from my experience, we're seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, ability to be able to invest small amounts of small dollar amounts in in other types of properties like commercial properties, multifamily properties, but there really isn't any big opportunities to, to invest in the, in the, in the single family market. And, and, and I'll say that, you know, from personal experience, again, I'm I'm invested in a private equity fund and there's been a few asset classes specifically, uh, self-storage that haven't fared so well. Or as well as we'd hope a- amongst the COVID nineteen crisis, and mm-hmm. we're actually, you know, is actually looking at now single family as a way to, to, uh, to you know, stabilize that portfolio during this COVID nineteen crisis. So I just overall, I, I'm, I, I think this is, it, it's it's really interesting for sure. It's a really interesting. It's uh, it's, market. it's
2: funny when um, we first got started doing the single family rental investing back in about 2010, 2011, uh, we, one, of the, one of the groups that, that uh, also was looking at it and, and actually created quite a large platform was Wayne Hughes, who started uh, Public Storage, which the biggest you know, huge self-storage play. And he got attracted to it because um, he jokingly sort of described it as you know, storage for people right? It, it's a utility. You know, it, you, people need a place to live and uh, providing that kind of safe uh, housing, there's, there's almost limitless demand for it. And I think we're still in the early stages of, of seeing single family homes as being viewed as kind of a viable real estate asset class for investors. We're just about 10 years into it being validated by institutional investors, but I think you're going to see that continue to grow. And you've seen it actually perform quite well Relative to the other asset classes during COVID, uh, you've had very good payment uh, of rent, very low turnover, uh, people not wanting to move, really valuing a safe place to live, as I mentioned. So, uh, I, I, so I think a lot of people are, are looking at that. One of the challenges is there's very little supply right now of just homes for sale in, in most markets around the country.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm we're that that's definitely true because I have a lot of friends right now who are, you know, at the home buying age and they're trying to buy homes and they're like, "Oh, Tom, you know, I know you're the you're you're, you're our real estate friend like, you know, what what's <laughs> what's the market looking like?" I'm like, "Well, guys, you know, interest rates are super low right now. People aren't really selling their homes. Uh, I'm like, you know, it, it's 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 not surprising to see a very sh- small supply and just increasing prices just giving everything." So, um Kind of, kind of switching gears a little bit, we, we, this is the Real Estate CPA Podcast, and we definitely got to talk about taxes a little bit. Um, you know, you've been involved in a number of different types of investments in the past. Has there been any tax strategies that you used personally um, that helped you minimize taxes as it relates to real estate?
2: Well, the, the nice thing about real estate, as you guys know, is it, it's just a very tax-efficient uh, way to, to invest. I mean, I've done you know, 1031s in the past. That's a, that's a, we're actually doing a fair amount of that now through Roofstock, where you've got investors who might be selling an apartment building and then rolling those proceeds into a portfolio. We could build them of single family homes. And I know you guys have, have talked about 1031s in the past, which is, that's a, it's an amazing tool. Um, and just by virtue of owning these, these rental homes, you do get the benefits of being able to deduct operating expenses and depreciation so you shelter a lot of your a lot of your income in, in owning these homes versus, and so when you get your dividend uh, or your distribution, uh, it's it's much more tax efficient than if you're getting a fully you know kind of an ordinary income sort of distribution from a corporate dividend or something like that. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's there's a lot of you know you guys are the. the I'm sure the experts in structuring creative offshore vehicles and all sorts of things like that, that that, uh, your clients can avail themselves to. But the the good news is generally, it's just a pretty tax efficient way to invest.
1: Kind of going back to your background real quick, what did you start off in? Like what field? Were you always in real estate? Because I really like how you were investing in real estate, single families. Then you go and you build this big company on top of that. Now you're talking about the tax benefits. I'm sure you've built just an incredible amount of wealth over that time period. But like, when did you, what did you, what was step one?
2: Yeah. So um, right out of um, undergrad before business school, I was a financial analyst with a company called LaSalle Partners, corporate real estate services. It's now part of Jones Lang LaSalle and it was incredible training. So I learned kind of the, the nuts and bolts of, of financial analysis understood how to build pro formas uh, understood kind of how taxes worked with estate, you know, all that fundamental grounding. Then I went to business school and learned a lot about, you know, broaden my thinking around how to build companies, corporate strategy, you know, more corporate finance, marketing, things like that. And then came back out and ended up going back into real estate. But I, but I had the benefit of thinking a little bit more broadly and, and uh, about, how to bring maybe some of these other things to bear to real estate. So then I've always been open to looking at macro trends and technologies and where they might be converging to create value. So earlier in my career, I, I was worked at a group called KSL resorts that was buying um, large resort campuses out of the RTC crisis, which was back in the early nineties or buying things at pennies on the dollar and, and, investing in the real estate, creating clubs, and then creating a lot of value. I, mm. That made a lot of sense. And I got, the, I, I got the appreciation for marrying kind of operating capabilities with real estate investing strategies. And hotels are one way to do that because they're very operationally intensive. And then with the, the I, I didn't mention Zip Realty, but after I left KSL, I went to an internet-based company called Zip Realty, which was one of the first, if not the first, to put complete MLS online. And we had an internet-based model, virtual agents. And there I saw the power of a web-based model to increase efficiencies, productivity. And and we grew that from about 40 people when I joined to about 1,800 when I left. And we took it public, and I was the CFO of that business. So what I took was a lot of my my kind of finance and strategy grounding and parlayed that into a CFO role at more of an internet company. So then I learned the tech side uh, by leveraging my finance and then got public company experience. And so what I've tried to do is build on in each of the things that I've done, everything that I have done and tried to also learn more things and in, in more disciplines and, and then got really interested in leading things after Zip Realty. Cause when I left, they made me president as well. And since that time I've always I've, I've been in each of my roles have had uh, kind of P&L responsibility, There is as president or C- CEO of companies. And so, and that's what I find. And I, and I really enjoy that. And so I think about what I do now is I like to create things. I like to build organizations that oftentimes have a heavy real estate co- component to them. But I don't think of myself as sort of a real estate person per se. Um, although I love real estate and a lot of what I do happens to be in real estate, but I like to think You know, I guess what I appreciate is from within real estate, oftentimes innovation is pretty slow to come because it tends to work really well for a lot of the incumbent players. And it's historically been a little slow to adapt new business models and new technologies. Um, I think that's changing a lot in the last three years, I would say. You look at the amount of money that's gone into prop tech, which is kind of real estate, fintech, prop tech. Uh, you know, it's been an, an enormous amount of money. And so a lot of, I think a lot of larger organizations are waking up to, to that and trying to either innovate themselves or partner with some newer players who are doing that.
1: Where do you see real estate technology or innovation going over the next five years or so? And, and let me, let me also add a follow-up and what does it mean to the average Joe investor?
2: Yeah. So I would say you'll continue to see uh, more and more consumer and investor-friendly models emerging. Uh, I think once, once, these, uh, once con- customers start to get the, realize the benefits of lower costs, higher levels of transparency, ease, less paper, I mean, how nice is it to be able to do a digital notary, for example, on your computer or on your phone versus having to go to a notary's office or having someone physically come and you sign a book? I mean, those types of very simple things are happening. Um, be able to buy a house like on Roofstock without ever leaving your laptop and you know everything's digital. All these things, I think, being able to invest in shares of properties, like, like with Roofstock One or what some of the kind of reggae funds are doing and crowdfunding. So increasing accessibility, making transactions more easily uh, easy, more efficient. Uh, and ultimately I think it, it's sort of a think about it as sort of a d- democratization of, of investing. You don't have to be a large institution to, or, or someone that wants to invest in a private equity fund, Tom, like you did, where you, you know, the minimum of those things are oftentimes $250,000. Sometimes it may be a hundred thousand, but it's not for everybody. And then you have very poor liquidity. So how do you bring those minimums down, make it, more accessible for people. So I think you think about real estate 1.0 to me was sort of about information. Think about the early days of Zillow and Trulia, CoStar, you know, all about information. I think real estate 2.0 is more about, uh, if that's about content, 2.0 is more about commerce. So it's, it's actually doing transactions on platforms in a very efficient way. And I think you're going to see more and more of that happening over the next, you know, three to five years.
0: Yeah, and that that's an, you know that that's excellent for the consumer for the retail investor to be able to get access to all of the stuff you know. Whereas before it was, it, it real estate was almost like a business unless you were going to invest in like an fund or something. Um, a quick question on that, maybe taking the opposite view of that you know there is a lot of institutional players getting more and more involved with real estate specifically single family uh, to, to, to your point before do you see that trend you know continuing to the point where the individual investor kind of gets cornered out of real estate uh, because of you know too much in, institutional capital is 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 entering the market
2: it's I hear this question all the time um, the short answer is uh, I don't. Um, I don't see it as being a problem, at least not in the foreseeable future. That What I think most people don't realize is the institutional players, even after a decade of investing at a very rapid clip, one might argue, own about 2% of the single family home market, of the, of the single family rental market, not even of the single family home market. So if you say there's 16 million rental homes, the largest institutional players own, call it 300,000. So it's a really, really small piece. Um, and oftentimes the, the homes that they're buying are homes that need work, where a, a lot of people who are looking to buy their first homes are not going to buy that home that needs fifteen dollars or $20,000 worth of work because it's harder to finance, you need a lot more equity. And so they're kind of different buyers oftentimes. Now, that's not to say there isn't competition and you have institutional buyers who are cash buyers and so sellers will find them you know, oftentimes good counterparties. Um, but it's such a big market and there are so many markets where the institutional buyers are not active, then, you know, I, I don't see it nationally being a problem, although there'll be, you know, there'll certainly be examples of places where there's multiple institutional investors buying and it's, it, it can create some issues.
0: So, so it kind of sounds like it's just more fragmented. It's, it's a lot it's harder. An extreme,
2: it's an extremely fragmented industry, when you think about the ownership of those 16 million rental homes, I think something like 85% own either one or two homes. So it's that long, long tail of, there, because there's, there's 10 million different investors of, who own those 16 million rental homes. So it is pretty fragmented uh, today. And I think it will be hard pressed to see the institutional investment getting over you know 10% of that Market anytime in the foreseeable future, and that would still mean ninety percent owned by mom and pops, and they're at two two percent today.
0: That's good to hear because that's always my fear that it, that 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 everybody gets cornered out, and pretty much the institutional that, I mean, the the individual investor it just had is you know it, it's just subject to all the you know, the products of the financial marketplace. But well, yeah, you, you live <laughs> in New York.
1: So no wonder you think that I mean, <laughs> we're all nice yeah. down
0: here, man. We do. Yeah. <laughs> in, in New York, I just think about Wall Street and how Wall Street plays. And, and, you know, the the real, the real draw to real estate to me, frankly, has been the ability that it's not part of Wall Street. And, yeah. and, and my fear is it's just becoming part of Wall Street pretty much.
1: You know, I, I thought I thought that too. But I, I also think that uh, here's a silly example, right? My wife and I walk our neighborhood every single day. And we, we pass probably 50 to 70 houses during our walk and we're doing long walks. Okay. Like mile, two miles. So we're passing a lot of properties and we, we know which properties like we're keeping an eye on. And then we're sitting here going, should we just like send them a letter and just say, Hey, we live in the neighborhood and we'd love to make an offer on the property the institutional guys aren't necessarily seeing that or they might find that same property, but only after they spend thousands of dollars advertising. So then the question becomes how many thousands of dollars can they spend to actually get a good return on their money and in what markets they want to go to. When I started thinking about that, I thought about kind of what Gary's talking about. There's just so many properties out there that that problem is just like so big (laughs) and tough to think about. Or I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not that worried.
2: (laughs) I think there's always uh, room for local expertise and what the big players try to do is recreate that to the extent possible through algorithms and all that kind of stuff. And you could get close, but I guarantee you're not going to be as good as you and your wife who know every inch of, of those blocks and know um, you know, all all the subtleties around that. There's all, that's why I think there's always room for, those local experts, the right real estate agents, I think can can always add value for people. You know, so you know it's a big enough market. I think it could accommodate a lot of different players.
1: Well, Gary, I like your approach with Roofstock on certifying property managers. So I caught that fact right. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. a great approach too because you're you're talking about you, you can take that algorithm approach. Or you can take the approach of let's just build really great connections with people that are on the ground that'll feed us leads. I'm not saying that's what you're doing with your property management group, but that's what I think about in terms of vertical integration. It's well, okay, so we offer this marketplace, and how do we feed the marketplace? Well, we can go certify these other people that could have leads that flow totally. into the marketplace. No, too, that's so. exactly
2: right. That's that's the thinking, right? We're trying to create network effects. And so the idea is to attract the the best property management groups to our platform. We'll give them clients, people who are transacting, and the better they are, the more clients they're going to get, the happier they're going to be. We can hold those property managers accountable to some degree for good service because we check their ratings and things like that. And if people complain about them, we'll kick them off the platform and we'll replace them with a new group. And so there's there's standards that they need to live up to. And so that's a benefit of the you know, of of them being able to plug into our network, they get sort of the benefit of the crowd, right? The buying down the fees, because they're gonna get more like institutional pricing on their property management coming through Roofstock, where if you call up that same property manager, you might be spending 10 or 12% of rent for your property management contract. And on Roofstock, it might be seven or eight, because we give them a lot of volume. And we've got a bigger stick in case they are not doing a good job for people, whereas the individual, part it's, it's a little bit harder if you don't have that uh, that scale or buying power.
0: absolutely now, this is, this has been a, this has been a fascinating episode for sure um, one one last question I think I uh, just kind of circling back to roof stock. Um do you need brokers to transact on Roofstock, or is it just kind of is it just buyer to buyer type of? So-
2: Yeah. So, um, yeah. um, So we are a a licensed broker. And so we get the majority of our fees come from the seller and then uh, we get a a marketplace fee from buyers of a half a percent to use the buying platform. But primarily our fees are paid by the sellers selling their inventory through our site. We also can accommodate uh, agents and brokers who want to come in and bring clients and earn they can earn fees that way. We, we, we pay referral fees when, if people want buy side representation, some people do do that, but the vast majority of people come directly to our site because all the, all the contracts are standard, they're all online and so people just buy directly from us. Um, so it, it, does, it does allow us to keep the fees down because people are coming directly through us and we don't have those cooperating broker fees in, that the sellers have to pay in most cases
0: absolutely so if, if our if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or learn more about roofstock in general, uh, what would be the best way for them to do so
2: I would say going to our websites probably the, the best way it 's just roofstock uh, <clears throat> excuse me roofstock just how it sounds uh, we have uh, you can follow our blog, follow us on LinkedIn uh, you know, any of the social media channels um, and we do have a fair amount of of uh, information on our site for people looking to learn. We even have a, a Roofstock Academy. Uh, you could get some free information there. We also have a paid subscription there. I think it's $1,250. Um, and you get a bunch of credits toward properties you purchase. Um, so you could actually get back that or more, I, I think, over time. But it's it's the idea really is to promote learning. And you get kind of a bunch of time with with people from our company who are experts who can help help you think through and, and put together your strategy. But we encourage people, you know, most our sites free to use. So people could come and just poke around. You learn a lot just by analyzing properties. You can, um, it, oftentimes it takes people a year or two or more before they actually buy something, but they're, you know, we, we love the fact that they're using their, our site and, and, um, and learning.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, thanks again for coming on today, sharing, uh, sharing, uh, some information about Roofstock with our audience. I'm sure there's people out there who would, who are going to be checking it out um, and uh, look forward to releasing this. Thanks.
1: Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at realestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.